0: okay good morning how we doing yeah it's good to see you always always good to see you we've been jetting around Isaac sent me a a text last night saying are, are you ready and I said yeah it's just gonna be a three-ring circus For me, because I want to give you a quick update on uh, our trip to Nigeria in May. And, of course, whenever we do these mission trips, uh, we're representatives of South Valley Community Church. you are the guys that send us. We're just the representatives that are in place to be voices and uh, to share and to teach. But, man, the work you guys have been doing in Nigeria, and that's what I'm going to focus on, Cuba, other places as well, but this morning, talk a little bit about Nigeria. We've been making investments there for years, and uh, it really paid off. The very first uh, pastors' conference we did, which, let's see, they, they do this big poster every year. So this was, I don't know, the 15th National Pastors' Conference, whatever it was. And pretty much I'd go to Nigeria just to get my picture on that billboard. I, you know, isn't that great? If that's not enough, you can also get your own bodyguards. So anybody that wants to come with us, I can get your face up there and I can get those guys to watch over you. It's pretty awesome. The first year was like 100 people, pastors. Then the next, it was two. Then it was four. Then it was eight. Then it was 15. This year, we were actually expecting about 1,500 pastors, surprise, surprise, like 2,000 showed up, so it was like almost c- controlled chaos, it was overwhelming, uh, because we had to send out and print another 450 study guides, handouts, uh, seminar brochures, which is a good problem to have, and then the food factor was huge as well. So it was a big deal. Uh, I just you know, it's hard to get a feeling for what's going on there unless you're there I think there were representatives from 27 of the 36 states of Nigeria So it's an authentic international or international. It's a national pastors conference so just to give you there's three levels here, which is pretty cool and The place was just packed uh, the whole time. That's the second level uh, that's from the first looking up to the second. This is the th- that's the second level, but there's three levels uh, I give out t-shirts if people get the right answers to things. Man, you really got to chuck them to get them. Up. one of them. I threw and the guy kind of reached over and I thought oh Oh, oh no. Oh, no. Oh, no. He missed it fell down into the crowd. There was a frenzy <laughs> It's just funny uh, how that works, but you imagine you know, it's hot in Nigeria, right? Imagine a building without air conditioning and there's 2,000 people in it, so I sweat a lot anyway I could start sweating right now because I'm wearing this vest, but when you're there, it's a a big deal So I try to wear shirts that kind of conceal it I don't want people thinking freaking out that I'm about to pass out or something because it doesn't bother me Even when it's in your face, if you don't look down and allow it to go into your eyes. It can burn your eyes out, actually, but if you keep straight up, it's okay. So I thought, man, I got a red shirt, and it's kind of supposed to wick away the, the, the sweat. So I put that one on. And that didn't work. So I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, I got a gray one, I got a cool gray one. So I'm gonna try that one. So, boom! <laughs> It got worse these are the photos from just this year okay so then I'm thinking hey black black you know what I mean black you can't see sweat through black so I go I'm going black (laughs) (laughs) this is true I kept trying I'm not kidding because and you don't even notice it when you're up there talking but people are like passing their handkerchiefs to you they're getting ready for you to pass out or something so then I thought wait a minute wait a minute I got a blue one I got a blue one that'll work And then it's like, (laughs) I could have keep going actually, but finally I landed on a white one that worked pretty good. All right? So (laughs) I did the best I could. Kind of a crazy deal. But here's Carol. She's doing a leadership thing for pastors. She's a great teacher. They love her there. Sometimes in the United States, people will say, this is Carol Smith. She's uh, Pastor, Pastor Eric's wife. But in Africa, they say, uh, this is Eric Smith. She's Pastor Carol's husband. <laughs> That's about the truth. They call her Mommy Carol. That's a term of endearment. They call me Daddy sometimes. It just means respectful. It's kind of thing. So she's, you know, she's telling it like it is here with the pastors, which is kind of fun. Here she is with pastors' wives. Uh, these are kind of breakout sessions, workshops, and things. She does a thing called... Um, club excellence every year for the staff of the hospital seminary the workers and usually there's a hundred plus people that come she teaches that it's very effective I just want to show this one this is more of a personal one the woman on Carol's left side in the red dress was a woman that was assigned to help her when she was there last year for four months and Carol would have lost her mind she said if it wasn't for that woman her name is Kate college educated, very sharp. Culture is so different there. You really get the picture of culture shock when you're there. its it, I couldn't take it, actually. Two weeks, maybe three, my limit, I'm gone. Get me a plane ticket. <laughs> it's just so different. But Carol, she could hack it for four months, almost. Kate saved her. And the girl on the on her right is speaking of saving. Carol literally saved this woman's life. She was being beaten to death by her husband and... Carol intervened and got Dr. Kasmir involved, and they rescued this wife out of a situation that would have probably proved to be fatal. So those are the kind of things. I threw this one in because this is a senator in Nigeria. He's located in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria, and he actually flew down from Abuja to Owiri, where our conference was being held because he simply wanted the ministers to pray for him and his wife so that he would have wisdom to help as a Christian to govern Nigeria. That was pretty moving to me personally. And he said he'd never seen a gathering of ministers that was that large ever in, the, in, the, in his entire lifetime. So it was encouraging that he wanted to do that. So that's just what we did. That's Dr. Kasmir on the right. He runs the Christian International Hospital, the West Africa Advanced School of Theology. He's the pastor of our father's house, and he's omnicompetent. Now, this is an odd photo. Carol didn't like this photo, but you see the big tent there? We sent that tent to Nigeria 10 years ago. We bought it in Hollister. A man who had three daughters bought the tent so he'd have his own reception area for one daughter, dollar, daughter, dollar, three dollar, and after the third daughter got married, he sold it. And I think we bought the thing for like $1,500. What a deal and what a difference it makes because they set it up in the middle of the parking lot. And here's kind of the feeding thing that's taking place between services. We provide the food for them to eat twice a day, 2,000 people, you can only imagine uh, how difficult this is. And there's just people everywhere. It's funny too, we sent that cargo container, you see it there? They turn those things into buildings and into offices and uh, they use everything. So, there were a lot of people. A lot of people. You can see the crowds. You see that little thing? That's a, they actually took that to keep people from just getting too out of control. And then they kind of direct them into the tent. And look at that tent. That's the same tent. So, these are the kind of investments that actually make a world of difference over time. They serve it. People go by. They do this in the afternoon, early, and then in, in the evening after the evening service. We gave out uh, Bibles. Uh, commentaries many of those which again were provided here we did a, a marriage seminar at the end of the week we do a marriage seminar for pastors and wives and there was at one point we invited couples that dress the same way and that's a big thing in Nigeria where a husband and wife will wear the exact same material and you can see the different couples there that was kind of fun uh, this is actually the marriage seminar when people were praying for their spouses and for their marriages I just like this picture. Aren't those men (laughs) good-looking? They really are. Nigerians are a bunch of good-looking people. Um, I also did a baby dedication I did not expect to do. It happened, uh, Dr. Casimir had a a bunch of people from his village, they wanted him to dedicate Let's see, their daughter, and there was a boy. So there was a boy and a girl. I wasn't even aware that I was going to participate, but he called me up. There was a boy and a girl. He goes, which one do you want? (laughs) I'm like, that baby is the cutest baby in the history of mankind. So I said, I'll take the baby. (laughs) I'm holding the baby for like 10 minutes. He's got the boy. You can kind of see it. (laughs) And again, this is the one point where I'm looking down at the baby, trying to keep the baby from crying, where the, the actual salt of my sweating went into my eyes so now my eyes are burning you know I'm kind of trying to signal Carol I got both hands around this baby I'm not letting go that's for sure so my glasses finally <laughs> slide off my face onto the baby <laughs> <laughs> Carol got the idea she comes running up there saves me at the last second that baby is so pretty and you know what's interesting they do it traditionally had many people from his village come and uh, They actually bring yams and put it on the altar, and then they bring a goat down the middle of the altar. These are gifts that are given to the man of God because in that culture, often, the offerings to pastors are actually agricultural. So that was just a fun event, and that baby was as cute as possible. We gave away 15 motorcycles to various village pastors. You can see the enthusiasm of that every year. We try to do that, and everybody here has been so supportive. It just changes and transforms the entire ministry of someone who otherwise, transportation is a big challenge there. we had a graduation, a commencement ceremony, which is always exciting. They have a lot of students in their college. I just took some pictures here of them marching on by, different people, men and women. It was an exciting time. This is a cargo container that arrived just after we left. We spent $25,000, South Valley did, you did, on this cargo container to actually facilitate and to outfit the hospital. $25,000 it cost to get it there. Now, what's interesting is the estimated value of the medical equipment in this cargo container was $500,000. So, Dr. Kasmir said when they opened it up and began to unload it, his words, our jaws dropped. Because you don't see stuff like this in, in Nigeria. You just don't. But they started unloading it, and there were all kinds of beds equipment it was just unbelievable and we have a second one arriving on July the fifth so you may not be aware of it but your generosity is what makes this kind of stuff possible And it's impacting people, it's impacting churches, it's impacting uh, the the country of Nigeria. That's why we take the risk, that's why we go there, that's why we do the things we do, because it's having such a big impact. I mean, these are the hospital beds, all kinds of good quality medical equipment. Uh, It's just amazing uh, what's happening there. And so that's all, folks, on that. Next, (laughs) yeah, that's good. Give yourself a hand. Good job. We'd be doing that in Cuba too, Oscar, except it's tough. They won't let you because of the embargo. And it's pretty tricky when you send stuff to Nigeria. They like to find some little technicality because bribery is a huge part of the culture there. Okay, David, the promise of a king. Hey, I wanted to say, if you guys didn't get the study guide on this, this is one rockin' good bunch of curriculum in here. I'm not kidding. I hope you're following along. We're on page 30. We're on message five, and uh, I'm here to talk about sex again. They always ask me to come when it has some weird twist about about sex or something. But I'm going to try to avoid that subject for the most part. But it's about the story of David and Bathsheba. We all know that David killed the giant, but today we're going to talk about the giant that killed David. This is truly a remarkable story about brokenness, about the brokenness of every human being. Look at David and Goliath. I'm sorry, David and Bathsheba. And I always, you know, last time I spoke on the woman at the well, and I like the challenge of trying to take a fresh look at a familiar story. So everybody thinks, well, I know all about that. Well, actually, I've got a few things, hopefully, that will be new to you. In the study guide, the heading for today's passage is the royal failure. And it was a royal, a royal favor, it, fav, failure, <laughs> favor, failure for sure. As most of you know, this is one of the most well-known passages of the Bible. You ask people, what do you know about David in the Bible, King David? Well, the Goliath thing and the Bathsheba thing. Those are the two things most people know about this. David killed Goliath, committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, the real reason this story is here is because the Bible is brutally honest about human weakness human and moral failure in human beings it never hides the mistakes of its heroes abraham lied continuously jacob deceived everybody moses committed murder and couldn't even go into the promised land peter denies jesus three times and here we are with david one of the greatest characters in the history of the bible and we have it all laid out for us here. Somebody once said, why is it that all your good guys actually look like bad guys? What type of book is the Bible? <laughs> is there, aren't there any good examples in there? When people talk like that, it actually exposes their assumption that the Bible and Christianity is based on living a good life and being a good example. So in the end, God will you know, bless you and take you to heaven. But actually, that's not the point of the Bible at all. That just reveals people don't understand what the Bible's about. Here's the point of the Bible. God continuously, continuously and relentlessly works with and gives his grace to fallen, sinful people who clearly can never and will never earn it or deserve it. That's the message of the Bible. So the people that we see, yes, they're broken. Yes, they make mistakes. Yes, they sin, just like all of us here today. Now, do you really think you're more spiritual than David was I don't think so. So, we should be concerned about our own brokenness. The Bible tells us that the Christian community, that the best people who have ever lived, have not, will not, and ultimately cannot overcome sin, the sin and flaws in their own lives, we were because we're broken. At the end of the service, we're, we're going to have communion, where Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. So, Jesus fixes our brokenness by taking our place and giving us the grace of god and working in us by that grace so why do we find examples remarkable examples of moral catastrophes in the bible uh, actually these examples stand as warnings for us you see this verse from first corinthians all these things paul said happened to them they're talking about old testament saints as examples as object lessons to us to warn us against doing the same things, making the same mistakes. They were written down so that we could read about them and learn from them, and in these last days as the world nears its end. So be careful if you're thinking, oh, I would never behave like that. Let this be a warning to you, for you too may fall into sin. The story of David's moral failure is really about the potential for sin that resides within the heart of every person. I know our culture doesn't like that anymore, Our culture likes to talk about the perfectibility of human nature and all that foolishness but the reformers spoke about total depravity pervasive depravity our fallenness affects every part our spirit our soul our body our relationships it affects every part of us and so it's important for us to see this story in that light now 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Two whole chapters are dedicated to this storyline. Obviously, we don't have time to deal with that, but I'm going to read a couple of primary sections and then make three points, okay? Let's look at the first one. In the spring of the year this is where the story begins isn't springtime supposed to be a wonderful time (laughs) the hope of new life excitement wow spring is in the air (laughs) i'm sure david didn't jump out of bed this morning that morning thinking you know i'm gonna go out there and ruin my life but he did but he did and i'll show you why in a second in the spring of the year the time when kings go out to battle, David sent to Joab. This isn't delegation of authority. This is neglect of authority, really. And his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. And David remained where? He should have been, hey, if he would have been in the battle, he wouldn't have been in the bed. But he stayed in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He was in his Lazy Boy. He was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That should have been the end of this story right there. Boom! She's a married woman, and she wasn't just married to anybody, she was married to one of David's mighty men. Can you believe that? This was a man, this, he was a soldier that protected David when Saul was trying to destroy him. He was one of the 30 mighty men of David. He was an elite soldier, an, a comrade in arms, a trusted friend. It just shows you the deceptive power of sin. So David sent messengers and what? Took her. Let me just make a. I was going to talk about this at some length, but I just don't have time. You know, I think Bathsheba's gotten a bad rap over the centuries. This isn't her fault. She was a victim, not a perpetrator. Just like the woman at the well, you know, we kind of paint her as like, oh man, she just moved from husband to husband to husband. To husband. No, she didn't. She was divorced by cruel and mean men over and over and over and over again. Probably because she was barren. So the woman at the well, we took a different look at her, and I think Bathsheba had nothing to do with this. It was David out looking at her. She wasn't trying to expose herself. There's a lot of different reasons to prove that, but I just want to give her a break because she was one of the first, first ladies in the history of mankind to do the hashtag me too. And listen, anybody in a position of authority better be careful whether you're a doctor, lawyer, minister, police officer, teacher, coach, whatever. If you're entrusted with authority, you bet better not abuse it. And this is exactly what's happening here. People, you know, when a king sends, and you're probably a teenage woman, sends for you, says he took her. He took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness and I could talk a little bit about that. No, don't have time. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Now let me interrupt the reading for just one second to summarize what happens next, all right? In light of the revelation that she was pregnant, David sent for Uriah who was at the front of the battle to come back home, allegedly to give a report on what was happening in the battle. So Uriah comes back home. And that's really not the purpose. David's hoping he'll sleep with his wife on this little brief hiatus and then assume that the child born later is his own. All right? So he comes, Uriah is such a a great guy, such a man of integrity. He comes and he'd made a vow to the Lord. No, I'm not gonna sleep with my wife. I'm not gonna have sex. I'm not gonna go home while my men are out on the battlefield in danger. So David said, go home and see your wife. He goes, no, I'm not gonna do that. So he sleeps outside in front of the palace. All right? David goes, "Uh uh-oh, now this is getting worse. The next night, he had him stay another night, and he gets him drunk, hoping that that would lower his moral standards somehow, but he still refused, and he slept again out in the open in front of the palace. Actually, Uriah drunk was a better man than David sober at this point. Isn't that remarkable? Why? He said, I'm a man of integrity. I will not do it. Now David feels forced to take it deeper. You follow me? Once you start to lie and deceive and cover up and conceal and come up with schemes, it gets deeper, deeper, deeper. So here's our next passage. Because Uriah wouldn't do what David had hoped, he said in the morning he wrote a letter to Joab, who was the commander of his forces, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now think about this. He's giving the death certificate. For Uriah's life, Uriah himself is going to deliver it to Joab. Imagine, imagine that. That's crazy. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and died. And so Joab, was, as he was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men fighting, fighting against them. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Okay? David's going, that was a pretty good plan, actually. It actually worked. actually worked. And then we read this at the end of chapter 11 before we go to chapter 12. It says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. The end of the, chapter 11, sounds like it's the end of the story, man. You think, wow, it all worked out just fine. It all worked out just the way David planned. It was a brilliant scheme. David pulled it off. Almost. You see the last verse of that chapter? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There was one loose end. The thing displeased the Lord. The last primary passage. Chapter 11. Kind of running off the screen there a little bit. But it said, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a famous prophet at that time. And often, probably the king was sitting in state. He adjudicated legal matters. People would bring cases to him. So Nathan may have done this before. Nathan brings this case to him and said, oh, king, this, this, this thing happened. What do you think? So Nathan comes to him and said to him, quote, there were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up. He brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. It was, a, it was an expected issue of hospitality at that time. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the, the man who had come to him. Isn't that heartless? It's just unbelievable. Notice what happens. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives. What an oath, huh? You know, that's like, I swear to God, <laughs> as the Lord lives, the man has do, who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, What? You're that man. I mean, what a brilliant thing, huh? Now imagine him storming in there right at the beginning. You know, David's the king, you know what I mean? He storms in there and goes, You, bad man, you're the man, you're the evil man. No, instead he tells this story, and David's the one that comes to the conclusion that pronounces judgment on himself. Nathan goes, You're the man. And David goes, Wow. God said, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. As if it weren't enough, you had to go take the one little lamb and destroy everything. Okay, from these passages, I've created a simple outline. Three simple points. I want to talk briefly about the power of sin. Let's begin with that. We'll talk about the power, the consequences, and the assurance of forgiveness. In this story, it's amazing that David breaks about 10 I'm sorry, he breaks about five of the Ten Commandments in this one act of sin. It's unbelievable. And this is the same man that killed Goliath, wrote half the Psalms, is called a man after God's own heart, penned remarkable poetry and literature, was a great military commander, and a spiritual leader. What the heck? How is this possible? It's possible because of the power of sin and its deception and how it can blind us and take control of us. You remember uh, Cain and Abel? You remember Abel brought a good sacrifice, Cain didn't, so Abel's was acceptable, but Cain's wasn't. Cain got angry, you remember the story? God came to Cain, it's so interesting, he goes, hey, you made a mistake, you didn't offer the right thing, but if you do what's right, you'll be accepted too. But then God warned Cain by saying, but if you don't do what's right, Sin is crouching at the door. not that an interesting term? Like a, like a mountain lion, like a tiger. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, is to control you, but you must master it. Now, did Cain do that? No. He let the power of sin control him. He kills his brother. It's a mess. Same thing's happening in this particular story. And this power of sin resides in each and every one of our hearts. The seeds of sin, the very real possibility of evil acts, resides in every heart. The Bible warns about the capableness of every person, just like David, to commit sin. So the power of sin, here's how Jesus said, Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witnesses, and slander. Um, The famous dissident and Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Anybody familiar with that guy? Yeah, he won the Nobel Prize for literature in 1970. He's kind of a remarkable author and writer. Here's what he said. He was imprisoned in one of the gulags of the former Soviet Union. He said, it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through all human hearts. Now, does it manifest itself through states, classes, political parties? Of course. But where does it come from? Where does this stuff come from? It comes from the heart. So he said, Bless you, prison, for having been in my life. <laughs> I always like that quote, too. Maybe you're in a prison right now, and it's a blessing. You just don't recognize it yet. So there it is. Good and evil pass right through the human heart. The seeds of sinful deeds are hidden within our, all of our hearts right now. I want to stress this because I don't want you to underestimate the power of sin to deceive and to control you. Here's what I think. If it could happen to David, it could happen to you. And here's the warning from Jeremiah The human heart is the most deceitful thing of all. It's desperately wicked. In the Hebrew, that means uncurable. And who really knows how bad it is? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Talking about how bad you are. <laughs> I'm talking about the propensity to sin that we all, me, you, everybody, because of our brokenness. So don't knowingly give in to any form of sin because it can lead to a walk on the roof of the palace. And it can ruin your life and everyone else's. Now let me show you how this works and how we give in and how we have to face the consequences of compromise. In chapter 11, It began with three words, in the spring. Should have been a time of new life. Instead, it signaled David's demise. Here's exactly what happened. Even though this tragic mistake looks like it just, boy, in the spring, boom, I made a mistake. No, actually, when you see a house collapse, you know the termites have been active for a long time. When you look behind the curtain and you look at david's life there were things where he began to compromise and compromise and compromise boom he makes this catastrophic error so i'm going to talk about three areas of compromise um they're all c i came up with three c's the first one i call concubines The Bible tells us that after David's many victories and achievement, that he took many wives and concubines when he moved to Jerusalem. That was a bad, bad idea. Actually, 2 Samuel said, so David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom. Notice what for, you see it there? For the sake of his people Israel. Not for his sake. Not for his pleasure but for the sake of his people israel and yet david took more concubines and wives from jerusalem this behavior was actually prohibited in the law and it represents a yielding to lust and excessive desires we know this because of deuteronomy 17. this was a restriction that god placed in the law david knew this only he, that is the king, must not acquire many horses for himself, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So there were three prohibitions. They were not, kings were not to multiply horses, wives, or silver and gold. Looks like David did pretty good on the horses. It says that when he conquered his enemies, he would, horse, he would hamstring the horses. Uh, He was extremely generous, even though he was wealthy. So it looks like he did pretty good two out of three. Two out of three, not bad. Two out of three, not bad. But the wife thing, the wife thing set the table for this mess that he got himself into. The warning here is this. Giving into lust does not decrease desire. It increases desire. Did you know that? That's kind of weird, huh? But it's true. It's true. David may have thought that he could deal with his sense of excessive desire or lust by increasing his harem, but it only increased his desire for more and more and more. I call it sexual covetousness. The word covet means a wanting more, all right? You think that this is going to satisfy it, but it doesn't. It makes it worse. It's a proven fact scientifically that feeding lust increases its demand until it becomes an addiction. It's kind of, did I just shut everything off? <laughs> no, almost. Ironically, if you did not know this, indulgence does not satisfy aroused desires, it merely inflames it. That's why sexual immorality, pornography, and those kinds of things are so devastating. It leads to what we now have identified as sexual addiction. Yielding to sexual immorality simply creates a greater and greater desire, and with that desire comes greater and greater mistakes. It's no wonder John Owens, the 17th century British theologian, gave this insightful warning. Isn't that a great, simple, pithy way of putting it? Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Those are the options. Those are the two options. So how about you? Are there compromises in your life that you're tolerating that could rise up and bite you? Are there temptations you're allowing to come into your life, you're putting up with, that you should stop right now? Remember, it's easier to crush an acorn than it is to try to bring down an oak tree. There's no question. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That, of course, agrees with the New Testament. Paul said, put to death Sinful, earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with, notice this list, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. They feed on themselves. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. So the thing, first thing is concubines, lust. Clearly, behind the scenes, he's, he's expressing out-of-control behaviors, and it manifests itself in this tragic event. Complacency would be number two. David is at the zenith of his life and career. Everything's gone right. Victories over his enemies. Tons of wealth. Every success imaginable. He was at the height of his fame. The people loved him. He was God's man, a man after God's own heart. He danced before the Lord. He brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He just did everything right. (laughs) But because of his success, you know what happened? What happens to all of us? he became complacent is that is that how you are that's how i am i got to watch myself you know it's funny i don't typically get into trouble with sin when i'm having a hard time and i'm my face being tested and it's tough but when everything's going great i just unfurl the sail and go i get into trouble it's crazy hard times make us more dependent on god in contrast to that success often makes us more vulnerable. Here's what we read. David became greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. And in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. But David remained in Jerusalem. He didn't just delegate his job. He neglected his job. He should have gone to battle, not to bed. Always remember this truth to stay spiritually vibrant. You have to what? What? Do hard things. You want a description of the Christian life? Three words. Do hard things. Jesus said, hey, if you want to be my disciple, you better take up your cross daily and follow me. What's a cross a symbol of back in that time? Crucifixion. (laughs) So you put yourself to death and you follow Jesus. It's tough. It's called discipline, and we get the word discipleship from it. We need to be diligent in our service for Christ, in our study of the scriptures, in our stewardship, in our generosity. We need to be involved in confessional relationships, in church attendance, in devotion to one another, in our service to our fellow man, in our compassion. I often make commitments to do things that actually take me out of my comfort zone. And sometimes, I'm telling you, I agonize. When I go to Nigeria, believe me, I agonize. Then when you get there, you agonize a little more. (laughs) And then you preach for two weeks and you're agonizing every day. (laughs) And it's kind of like when it's all over, I'm like, thank God I did that. That was a hard thing. Climbing that mountain was tough. But climbing the mountain of faith, it is hard. But the rewards are eternal. So I'm not kidding you, Christian. David got into trouble because he was just coasting. You know what it means if you're coasting? Right? Yeah, of course. You know, you put a neutral. It means you're going downhill. That's simple enough, huh? You like this? <laughs> it means you're going downhill, picking up speed. Then you try to put the brakes on. The brakes are out. <laughs> so, here's my advice. Don't be a lazy boy. You can own a lazy boy but you can't be one. You know, they've had studies about what's the most dangerous thing in a household, like the scissors, knives, this, this, this. I'm telling you, that's the most dangerous thing in your house, right there. (laughs) It is. It's the lazy boy. If David had been doing what he was supposed to be doing in the spring, there would have never been a Bathsheba gate. So how about you? What do you do late at night? You find yourself doing things, going places, looking for entertainment in the wrong places. Here's what the Bible tells us. Sorry, I jumped a page. (laughs) Carelessness, all right? Here's the deal. One night David couldn't sleep, so he went for a stroll on the roof of the palace. He looked over the city and noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking her evening bath. So what do I mean by carelessness? I mean, what, what what the heck's David doing out there doing that? You know, looking in people's windows? You're kidding. That's why I'm saying he was a voyeur. She wasn't an exhibitionist. He's the guy. He's the guy doing the wrong stuff in the wrong place at the wrong time, being where he shouldn't have been, doing something he shouldn't have been doing. He was already in harm's way because he was exposing himself to unnecessary temptation. And this is exactly why he made the mistake he did. In fact, you know, the principle of life if you go looking for trouble, what's going to happen? <laughs> it's easy to find. Yeah, you'll find it pretty fast. You remember when you were a kid? I I was always in trouble when I was a kid. I just was. So I I could be in a crowded crowded room with 50 other people and I could see the most mischievous person in the whole room. Right across the room, I could just see him. That guy's like me. (laughs) We'd be matched up before a half an hour was over and we'd be in trouble in the next half hour. It's just funny how trouble will find you if you go looking for it. That is a fact of life. Now, if I can personalize this, I'd like to ask you this question. What do you do with your downtime? What do you do with your free time? What do you do with your leisure time? What do you do at night? Do you go walking on the roof? you go walking through the internet? What, what's the deal? Where are you exposing yourself to something that could end up truly being harmful for you? You know, if you're wandering around on the roof at night, you're already two-thirds of the way towards a problem. That's why the Bible tells us, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I like the more modern translation too. But ask the Lord Jesus Christ to help you live as you should and don't make plans to enjoy evil. Well, tragically, David let concubines, complacency, and carelessness cause him to sin. And afterward, he had to live the rest of his life in the backwater of that one night of indiscretion. Ouch. That night, corrupted his character, destroyed his family, imperiled his kingdom, and brought shame and reproach on the name of the Lord. We looked at power of sin, consequences of compromise. Last but not least, the assurance of forgiveness. Now, this is really a unique story. Quick review, we've already read it, but Nathan shows up, probably at court, and he lays out this case about the rich man, the poor man, and then he goes, now, O king, you know, What should be done to the rich man? It's showtime right now. So David, as king, gives his judgment. He adjudicates this this legal matter, and the first thing he says fits into the Mosaic Law. He goes, that man should pay fourfold. And that's in Exodus 22.1. If you steal someone's lamb or cow or goat, you had to make restitution fourfold. So he's right on there, okay? But what's the next thing he says? Is that man should die now that wasn't in the law of Moses. That was way over the top. You didn't kill someone for stealing a lamb. Even in the United States, you know, horse thieves, they used to hang them. You know, it's never been a US law that would allow you to hang somebody for stealing a horse. That was always vigilantes. It was never, ever. You know, so if you went to court, that guy stole my horse. They're not gonna take you out and hang you. Only vigilantes would do that. Only mobs, only an anarchy. Not even our own laws would expect that. So this idea, let's kill that guy, man, David, he's upset for sure. This is not a capital crime, but he wants a guy to die, all right? So what we witness here is that David is in a rage. Now, you ready? This is probably the deepest point I'm going to make. And like I got 12 seconds to make it. (laughs) This is going to vibrate. I'll let you hear it. I guess not. Oh there it is. Can you hear it? <laughs> <laughs> there it is. What does that mean? Nothing. All right. <laughs> I'm serious. I always tell this. They actually had me speak for an hour and a half straight in Nigeria on Tuesday morning. They turned it over to me at nine twenty five and said, You can go to ten fifty-five. It's kind of like, and everybody thinks, oh, preachers, man, that's a dream come true. No, actually, that's a lot of pressure to speak for an hour and a half and hold people's attention and stay on the subject and all of that. You know what's the most remarkable thing about that? I spoke for an hour and a half straight. When I was done, I sat down, they waited five minutes, and the next guy got up and started the next session. That did surprise me. It's like, enough already. It's poor people. Where was I? Here's where I am. You ready for this? This is deep. The first service people are usually go-getters. That's why they're here early. All right? I believe that David's reaction here, the whole rage thing and over-the-top thing and capital punishment thing, is a manifestation of his own guilty conscience. Here's how I think it works. If you're guilty of sin in one area, it can make you unusually self-righteous in all kinds of other areas in your life. Kind of a weird thing. It's like one's self-righteousness becomes a necessary compensation for the guilt that resides in your own heart. So now you're gonna cross every T, dot every I and be righteous as can be run around acting like other people are so bad. They deserve to die. (laughs) That's what it is. So I believe David's self-righteous anger and his excessive desire to punish this unrighteousness represents a compensation for his own guilty conscience. Listen to this. This took me about a week to write one sentence. So as David listens to Nathan's tale of unthinkable injustice... David's compensatory zeal to be a champion of righteousness is provoked. Here David's inordinate anger toward a lamb being stalled is actually a semi-conscious expression of his own sense of guilt and shame. Wow. It was a hypocritical manifestation of self-righteousness. I've seen this in people. I've seen it in ministers. Later it comes out, what the heck? That guy was like super righteous about everything else except that one thing he was doing. Isn't that crazy? All right, it's shocking that David would be outraged about the death of a lamb while at the same time deceiving himself about the magnitude of his own adultery, deception, lying, and murder. Wow, talk about the heart being deceitfully wicked above all things. But David, by his excessive anger and hypocritical self-righteousness, actually passes judgment on himself. Isn't that why Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged? You know, that's not about judging things. False doctrine, you need to judge that. We need to be fruit inspectors. Somebody says something, is that true or not? You can judge that. How can you even go to court and be on a jury if you're not going to judge things? Jesus is not saying you never judge nothing, but he says, judge righteous judgment. In other words, if it's hypocrisy, if I'm trying to take a speck out of another person's eye, well, I got a beam in my own. That's where that context is, and that's exactly what David's doing. So Nathan goes, You're the guy, you're the man. Now, I want you to notice something I said earlier. Nathan doesn't begin with, Thou art the man. He doesn't introduce the confrontation that way. He ends it that way. And in describing and being wise, he actually persuades David to see the error of his own ways. And I believe if there's hope of persuasion, God always goes for conviction and conversion, not condemnation. That is the Christian way. Okay, God... The Bible says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. No, he was after the restoration of David, not the exposure of David. And Christians, you know what it says? Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you are spiritual, should do what? Restore, not expose. And then you should do it with gentleness because you should keep watch on yourself because it might be self-righteousness that's pointing that out in other people's lives. And that means you're next. That's what that means. Okay, almost done. Let me conclude. What everyone needs, I believe, is a Nathan in their lives. He was diplomatic, he was wise, he was gentle, but he was honest because God showed him something in David's life that was destructive, wrong, unrighteous, wicked, sinful, inconsistent with God's will for his life. And he graciously but honestly spoke the truth in love. You gotta have Nathans in your life. And you know what else? You need to be a Nathan to other people. So don't forget that. That's so important. I believe in confessional relationships. I really do. I mean, when I sit down with people and we're gonna talk turkey, I wanna tell them everything I can in the most personally incriminating way as possible. I don't want to hide. I don't want to be dishonest. I want to say I'm broken here, I'm broken there, I'm weak here, I'm weak there. Would you guys pray for me? The Bible says if we confess our sins to one another, we, then we pray for one another and we can be healed. But if we run around concealing stuff, we're only as sick as our secrets. So if you're here today and you're living a lie in some capacity, you need to do what David does Because most of the time, we don't even see our own problems and flaws. We can't see it ourselves. Instead, that's what we act like, huh? Yeah, that's a pretty good picture of me. (laughs) Okay, here's how it ends. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You can read all about it in Psalm 51, the greatest passage describing repentance in the Bible. He goes, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, and this is such a powerful verse, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Isn't that amazing? That's what God does. See, this is called grace. This is called grace. It actually says right there, the Lord has taken away your sins. You're not going to die. Because of Jesus, the Lord has taken away your sins. Because of Jesus, you're not going to die eternally. Nathan told David, the Lord has taken away your sin. That's what sovereign grace is about. He said, you're not going to die. This statement actually is God's declaration to all mankind, to every human being, to every person here today. It is God, not man, who takes away our sins through Jesus Christ's death on our behalf. Remember John the Baptist? John 129 said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's God, not man, who rescues us from eternal death, Romans 6, 23 The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. There's the gospel. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not the results of works that any man should boast. So I hope today you can embrace Nathan's words as God declares to you. If you're willing to repent, I've taken away your sins. Would the uh, ushers come and distribute the elements? We're going to take communion together. If you'd hold it. We'll stand in a moment and take it together. And as we do, in conclusion, you can just choose one of these lessons learned today, okay? Number one, don't become idle, passive, complacent about your spiritual life. Remember, sin never just happens. It's the result of a series of compromises, all right? Number two, stay away from from activities, association, and exposure to sensual materials. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Number three, never rely on past successes to shield you from failure. Be accountable to others. Have Nathans in your life. And don't get distracted just because you're passing stuff around here. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Number four, realize that is a natural tendency to cover up when we sin. But sin can never be successfully concealed. The Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. Two more. Remember, one night of pleasure can trigger years of pain. Did you know that? Number six, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad it might be, there is assurance of forgiveness for you. What you need to do is repent in Jesus' name and you will receive divine grace and forgiveness. This is my last quote. It's from the Westminster Confession of Faith, and uh, it's a proper intro to communion together here. It reads, As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Isn't that a great confession? Thank you. God bless you. I appreciate your support during this sermon. Everybody else looks pretty unhappy. (laughs) I'm kidding. Let's stand. There is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. When Jesus died, he said, it is finished. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. We get to trade our brokenness for his broken body. We get a fresh start. We get a chance by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit to live the lives we were destined and designed by God to live so that we can sow to the Spirit and from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, Lord, we thank you for this bread. We thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, and we pray that you'll bless this bread to the spiritual nourishment of our lives and our the fortitude of our commitments to Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat the bread.